The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. When I presented as male and I was attack dog, you know, and I, I was killer Krug, jurors may not have liked me entirely, but they would have respected me. But a woman who is aggressive in the courtroom, the juror is not going to see that. What jurors are going to see is that you are, you know, now the B word starts to come in and then all that kind of stuff attaches. Hello to our listeners and welcome back to The Hearing. I'm Jennifer Thibodeau and I am so excited to be hosting my very first episode and to introduce you all to Ellie Krug. Ellie is a self-described writer, lawyer, and human. The reason I wanted to invite Ellie onto the podcast is because I attended one of her trainings probably about four or five years ago now, and it was absolutely transformative. And that is a testament to her and her authenticity. As you'll hear us discuss today, Ellie transitioned from male to female in her early 50s. And at that time, she was this uber successful civil trial attorney. She had a very aggressive, traditional male persona. But as you'll hear her explain, this was in sharp contrast to what was going on in her head about her gender identity and what she describes as these gut tugs that she had been having for many, many years. You'll hear Ellie talk about how her decision to lead this authentic life cost her everything. We discuss the reaction of her clients and those in the legal community as well. And you'll hear Ellie tell us about how since then she has dedicated her life to making the world a fairer and more inclusive place for all humans, particularly those who are considered other. Ellie is a dynamic trainer and has presented to over 1,000 audiences from Fortune 100 companies to schools. And as she explains today, she does this work where no one goes. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Ellie's vulnerability and bravery are an example of how we can all learn compassion and empathy from one person's story. The Hearing. Hello, Ellie, and welcome to The Hearing. Hey, Jennifer. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I am absolutely thrilled and excited to have you as my very first guest. There is so much ground that I want to cover with you today, but let me start by saying congratulations because the American Bar Association announced that it is recognizing you for your work to advance lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals in the profession and will honor you with its Stonewall Award during the mid-year meeting next year. This is such a great place for us to start. So please tell us about your work at Human Inspiration Works. Well, thanks for mentioning about the award. And I'm just really honored that the the ABA would recognize me. It's totally out of left field. And um, I just, I mean, I just didn't expect anything like this. Um, My work at Human Inspiration Works, it's my company, and on the, on the high level, what I do is I 
speak across North America about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have a number of different trainings. As you might expect, I have a, a Trans 101 a training, um, training on how to be welcoming to LGBTQ plus people. But I also have a training, train many trainings that are just generally geared around uh, diversity and inclusion. My most notable training is uh, called Gray Area Thinking, which is an LGBTQ plus focused. It's just simply focused for all humans. And it's a tool set on how to be welcoming to anybody who is quote unquote different or other compared to quote unquote us. Um, people love that training and actually I'm, I'm better known for that training than any other training right now. And I mean, we're we're in excess of me having conducted a thousand trainings altogether since I started speaking. But that's on the higher level. On the more granular level, what I what I think makes me a, a bit more noteworthy is that I do my work in places where transgender people aren't visible. I I I I go to to you know, small towns. I go to um, rural areas. I go to, you know, what might be considered very conservative places. And I, I go and I talk about, sometimes about what it means to be transgender, but a lot of times it's just simply about how to be welcoming to anybody who's different or other through gray area thinking. And I, and, you know, we have many, um, many role models in the in the LGBTQ plus community, but particularly in, for the trans community, who are, you know, very, you know, famous people like, you know, Laverne Cox. But for me, the work is where we're not known, where we're not, where we're not necessarily welcomed, where we're feared, maybe. That's where my work is, to go to those places and to, to, to reaffirm that all, all humans, you know, are just basically good people. But that's a message that seems to resonate greatly with, with anyone that I meet. So, sorry, long, very long answer to your question, but that's the work that I'm doing. No, please don't apologize. Let me say that I met you when I attended your gray area thinking training, it was at the New Jersey State Bar Association annual convention. Sometime before the pandemic, it all blends together. It might've been 2018 or 2019. And I know I've kept in touch with you in the years since, but I don't know that I've ever told you how transformative that experience was for me. I was not the same person when I left that room as I was when I entered it. And that really is because I had never witnessed firsthand a transgender individual share their story and on a macro level had never witnessed anyone be so vulnerable and honest, particularly a lawyer in front of a room full of strangers who happen to be lawyers. So can you talk a little bit about that training to give the audience a flavor of what you do? And can you also explain how you use your voice as a powerful training tool in particular? Well, of course, your listeners right now, and, and we should address the elephant in the room. Your listeners are thinking that I'm a six foot two, 215 wide shouldered quarterback. 
uh, <laughs> talking to you, you know, maybe as a five o'clock shadow. The reality is, I think I, I look very feminine for a yes. 65 year old woman um, with, you know, long, longish blonde hair and, and, and a, you know, a, a size six figure. Um, but it's the incongruity between the voice and the appearance that lends to how gray area thinking works so well. Now, remember, it's a tool set on how to be welcoming to, to anybody who is different or other. And as soon as you, you meet me and I open my mouth, I mean, you know that I'm, most people know that I'm different or other, although I joke about a half a dozen older women in Bemidji, Minnesota, who just think that I smoke five packs of cigarettes a day for 25 <laughs> years and have no idea about me being transgender. But so that's our jumping off point, though. And we talk about it at the beginning of the at the beginning of the gray area thinking that I am different or other and and people react to my voice and I'm very often um, reminded that I'm other because I can see the visual reactions. I mean, they give me what I call is the look, you know, and that's because, you know, their eyes tell them one thing, but as soon as I open my mouth, their ears tell them something else and the human fight or flight response kicks in at that point because they don't know what category to put me in. But the talk generally is about how we group and label humans. We do, and then we automatically attach things to those humans because we group and label them. And I think, you know, and the talk has four modules, how we group and label others, how we group and label ourselves. So that involves um, us actually becoming vulnerable in the room. But by the time we've done that, I think people have come to understand that they can trust me. And for that second module, how we group and label ourselves, if I'm doing it live, I come and hang 19 signs with painter tape, painter's tape on the wall and uh, representing different identities that humans have, socioeconomic status, gender, age, so religious, spiritual affiliation, compassion, the sign that says not good enough slash failure. You know, and I get everybody up and I give them a series of prompts and ask them to go stand by the sign that's responsive to them. And, what happens when people go and stand by those signs in response to those prompts is that it causes people in the room to say, wait a minute, I didn't know that about you. And then I ask people if they want to share why they're standing under signs. And it's not uncommon, you know, I mean, I give people a trigger warning. This might be emotional, but it's not uncommon to see people with wet eyes or sometimes they, they do start crying because they're, they're being vulnerable and they're sharing about stuff. Um, that they've never told anybody. But then what happens is, you know, I mean, this is basically Brene Brown on steroids. What it <laughs> does is it, the vulnerability pulls everybody together. And um, I mean, you, you know, you see people hugging each other, you see people high-fiving each other, you see a lot of laughing, you know, and all that stuff. But, but in the end, what the exercise does is shows that we're all, we're all attempting to survive the human condition. We are. And so if you're attempting to survive it, why wouldn't anybody else be attempting to survive it? You know, but we, and we all have challenges, but there's, there's a kicker at the end of the, of that second module um, that just is unbelievable because it's, it asks the question, the identity I want to be known for is, and invariably, invariably, wherever I go, whether it's, red place or a blue place or a Bernie place or however you want to characterize it. Invariably, the vast majority of people, we're like talking somewhere north of 70 to 80%. The vast majority stand under one sign, compassion. 
We want to be known as compassionate people. And that, that is a story that no one understands. Everywhere I go, people really show that they care about each other, people that they know and strangers. It is an unbelievable exercise and it works. It really works incredibly. And then the third module of the training is the actual tool set. We do some role playing and the fourth module of the training are the three levels of human inclusivity. And we do some more role playing. People love, like the training greatly. And, and you, were, you are not the first person to tell me um, that the training um, impacts you know, audience members greatly. You know, I mean, I have had people say that it has changed their lives. And, and I'm just humbled every time, humbled every time I do that. And again, I'm behind the scenes. I'm not going to, you know, rock star status, walking into rooms with 5,000 people screaming my name. I'm not doing that. And that's the way I want it. I'm going to places where this work is needed. Well, as someone who has attended your program, and like I said, this training being so transformative, I remember being in the room, it was like an 8 a.m. continuing Mm -hmm. legal legal education program, and you gave your introduction, and then you started having us walk around the room, and you see people are like, oh, does this mean I have to get up, and I'm actually going to participate in an exercise because I am physically moving my body? But then I witnessed that magic when you stand underneath a sign when you're prompted with something like, oh, the identity my parents uh, prioritized for me as a child was this, you think, I didn't think I'd be standing shoulder to shoulder with some of these people. So it is such an exercise in empathy. And I really do thank you for that. And I can testify firsthand to the change in the room. I do remember people becoming emotional. And as the morning passed and more people joined, seeing that experience unfold again and again. Thanks. You know, that first prompt is the identity that my parents or parental figure stressed for me as I was growing up. And we see a lot of people go stand by education or religious spiritual affiliation or family. But more and more, I'm seeing people who are are standing under a sign, not good enough slash failure. Hmm. Can you imagine? And every time I see that, I'm like, I say immediately, I'm so sorry. Hmm. So sorry that happened to you. But can you imagine growing up and being told, you know, as a young child, that you, that you, you know, that you were a failure, you know, and and um, and that you weren't good enough, and and that that the the trauma from that, and then when you see when you see that's your colleague, mm-hmm. your colleague went through that, it just changes automatic right there. It changes your perception of that person. Oh. Maybe that's why they've always been so difficult to work with Mm -hmm. because they've never thought that they're good enough. So it's no surprise that everyone really gravitates towards that compassion identity at the end, because how can you not feel compassion when you are opened up to this perspective? You would have never assumed. So let me change gears for a minute, Ellie, because There's so much I want to cover with you, and I want our listeners to understand that before you were doing this truly powerful work, you were an advocate in a different way as a lawyer in the very traditional sense. 
You were a civil trial attorney for decades. Can you tell us about why you wanted to go to law school and when you made that decision? So I tell people that um, I was alive when Dr. King and uh, Robert F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, were alive. And it was true. I was 11 years old when they were murdered in mm. April, well, in 1968, Dr. King in April and then Bobby in June. I had started reading the newspaper when I was seven. And Dr. King and Bobby were all over the news at that time. And then, of course, they were on television. And just like with a billion other people, their words sank into me. They did. I, that, I mean, I, I did not come from a I mean, I'm the first person in my family to ever go to college and, and certainly then to go get a graduate degree. Um, but, but Dr. King and, and Bobby, they, they taught me that we have an obligation to make the world better. It's an obligation. I mean, it, and, and it's not something, as I joke around, that you fit in between yoga and take out sushi. Mm. And so I decided that I would become a lawyer like Bobby if you came to me when I was 12 years old and you asked me what I wanted to do, I would say, well, I'm going to law school. I'm going to be a lawyer. I mean, I, there was never any question in my mind about uh, about that. And I was very determined. You know, um, I started working the day after I turned 16. I went to law school and then I got sidetracked by uh, two things that kept my idealism. I'm, I'm an idealist that Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy made me idealistic. And... Um, but I got sidetracked. First, I, I found out <clears throat> that I could make a lot of money um, just simply by working hard. And I had a really good, strong work ethic. I learned that I could really make a whole lot of money. And I came from a family that was challenged around money, that was oriented around money, and it, it just imprinted on me. But the other challenge, the other thing that kept me from being idealistic um, was my gender issues. I, I fought myself to try and stay, to stay male. I mean, I, growing up in the late 60s and the 70s, the idea that your brain didn't match your body and that you could do anything about it was just impossible. And I had also fallen in love with a girl in high school who I just cherished. And we knew almost immediately that we would be together forever. And um, I really, really loved her and cherished her. So so all of that kind of went on, but I did end up, you know, obviously going, going to law school, graduating from Boston College Law School. The Hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game, with superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. When you started your career, and I read your memoir, getting to Ellen, what really resonated with me was that feeling you described of chasing time as a junior associate, trying to find more hours in your day to bill, because we both know you could be there for 10 hours, but maybe you're billing seven. And you were doing this amazing trial work, taking hundreds of depositions. Can you tell us about your work-life balance, if it existed, and more about the types of cases you worked on and the volume of your caseload? Well, that was a that it was a progression in 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 the way I viewed the world. So um, when I f 
first started practicing as a civil trial lawyer, it was with a firm that paid not very well at all. And that it, the, the atmosphere wasn't very rewarding. And so I, you know, I was still, I was coming in during the week, but on the weekends I was not coming in very much. And, mm -hmm. and I started to hear from some of the partners, you know, they'd been looking for me on Saturday, you know, why, you know, mm. why wasn't I in? My response back was, well, I'm riding my bike, <laughs> you know, I'm a bicyclist. <laughs> Good for you. Um, but it didn't last that long with that firm because, it, I mean, that firm gave me great experience because I was the junior person. And in Massachusetts at that time, if you had a motion, you had to go, it was a cattle call. So you had to like, you know, go and sit in courtrooms and, and wait till your motion got heard. And I, since I was the junior person, I was going all over Massachusetts for motions. And so I got to sit in courtrooms and watch lawyers as they interacted with judges. And you could see pretty quickly who knew what they were doing and who didn't know what they were doing. And for me, it was quite a re revelation that there are a lot of people that were not very good as lawyers. I mean, I'm like, so, mm -hmm. but Within a year, I, w I was at a different firm, and that was a whole different ballgame. And I, I, I quickly came to understand that if I wanted to succeed at that firm, I had to build, I had to build a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I mean, it was chasing time. You, you could literally be at a place for 10 hours and build only six, you know, or five, because you can't build for all your time, and you got this other stuff going on. You got people coming in and interrupting you and da-da-da and all that kind of jazz. And so I started working a lot of hours, but that was nothing compared to when I eventually left Boston, went mm -hmm. back to Iowa with, at that time, my wife, you know, my, we were married at that, by that time, Lydia and I, and we, you know, we wanted to start a family we wanted to put down stakes. Again, in my head, I dealing with all kinds of issues around my gender, but I did not let her know that um, because I never wanted I never wanted it to come out. I, I, I just thought I could outwork it. I thought I could later on out therapy it. But at any rate, so by the time eventually in Cedar Rapids, I start my own law firm in 1996. Once I had my own firm, uh, and, and I was very lucky, I had a really good start with the client base of railroads and trucking companies. But once you run your own shop, Forget about it. Now it's every dollar, every hour you bill has to matter. And and the time that other people bill has to matter. And I put my <clears throat> I put myself into a pressure cooker and I was billing, and these are real hours. These are not like, oh you know, thumb on the scale hours. Right. I was billing somewhere between twenty eight hundred and three thousand hours. Every year now, how did how did wow. I deal deal with that? Well, I learned this trick about about going in early, mm. and so and in Cedar Rapids, where I was living at the time, it was a five minute commute, if that, and parked in the back of the building. And so I was getting, and we had little girls at that point, and I was getting up at four thirty, mm. um, and then just going into the office right away. Um, and working for a couple of hours you know, uninterrupted, nobody's bothering you. 
So that gave me uh, some time. And then later on, as the girls were going to, because I wanted to be home for the girls at night. And so I thought, I'll suffer, not them. And so, um, and then as, uh, as the girls got older, I would go in and then, and then pick them, come back to go back home, pick them up, take them to school and then go work out and, you know, and then go back to the office and stuff. But I was working six days a week regularly, a lot of times on Sundays or at least half the day on Sunday. And um, I developed a reputation um, as a consequence mm-hmm. of all that. One was hard worker. I mean, you asked anybody in Cedar Rapids, Iowa about Ellie Krug, they'd be telling you, God, Krug works a whole lot. Second, though, I developed a reputation as being difficult. Um, and uh, not in the sense that you, you you called me one extension. Oh, my God, I'll give you an extension. Don't worry about it, okay? Mm. But difficult in the sense that um, if you worked for me, you needed to be perfect because I was keeping my gender issues under wrap and mm-hmm. I was trying to be perfect. And, you know, there's this old concept of frust- frustration, aggression, and that certainly was the case with me. And so I, I had a hard time keeping people because I was I was very difficult. And in the courtroom with witnesses, you know, I mean I I mean if you if you were lying, I was gonna mm-hmm. go after you. And with this voice, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the voice was a it was a wep- became a weapon. Um, because once the voice got focused towards you and I moderated modulated i i get you know all i did would was look at you and say really is that true and i had witnesses on the stand admit that they'd lied and and so you know i mean my clients loved it they Mm -hmm. did you know and other lawyers did not like it and i tangled with other lawyers ellie so you just painted this picture of Killer Krug, as you describe yourself in your memoir, but what was going on inside your head when it came to gender at that point in your life? You know, I I was struggling and suffering um, greatly because my gender issues went back to me as a kid. You know, going and I'm not very proud of it, but I tell the story about going into my sister's bedroom one day, trust me, no one was home, and going into her underwear drawer and stripping off all my boy clothes. I was 11 years old, stripping off all my boy clothes and putting on a pair of her panties and a camisole. And from the front, it didn't work. She had a full-length mirror in her bedroom. But from the side, when I looked in the mirror, I mean, I looked like a girl. And a shot of electricity went through my body. But again, it was the 60s and the 70s and the idea that and I that this was anything I could do anything about was kind of crazy. So I did what a lot of transgender people did at that time and some continue to do even today. It's called suppression. Mm. I thought that all of these ideas about me being female and then later on I started having same-sex attractions. I thought all of that stuff would go away. I did. I just thought I'd outgrow it. You know, it's just a phase, you know. I mean, I was a relatively smart kid. I'm like, don't worry, it's just a phase. Don't worry about it. Enjoy while you got it, and then it'll go away. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I fell in love with this girl and, and I tried to tell her about it and that didn't go anywhere. And I learned this very important lesson when I tried to tell her about what was going on in my head. I learned that anybody ever found out about it, that I would lose them and I might mm-hmm. lose other things. So I suppressed and um, eventually it got to the point where I needed to go and and get therapy. So on the exterior, I'm this very aggressive, you know, difficult to deal with person. Although my my wife at the time, I mean, we never labeled it, but she saw my my feminine heart. Mm. That's what she loved about me. She always told me that I was different than other people that I could speak from my heart, that I could be soft and I could be gentle. But she, only she and a select other people saw that from me um, because, I mean, that's truly who I am, but it didn't fit the persona of what I needed to be for a lawyer to, to have my own law firm and to have the kind of clients I had. Mm. So I just, I suppressed, and when I couldn't, when it got too difficult, um, because I I knew that if this ever came out, I I knew that I would lose my wife. I loved her so much, but she, she didn't want to be attached to somebody who was a a female. And and I knew that I would lose my law firm. I knew that I would, might lose one of my daughters, um, if not both of them, and I'd lose other important people in my life. So I suppressed it, eventually went to therapy and I went to therapy saying, I don't want I don't want to figure out what I am. Mm. I want you to help me stay married. I want you to help give me a mantra that I could say to myself when the stuff inside me would come bubbling up. And and now in retrospect, it's called gender dysphoria. And, and, but Mm. there's this, this, I have this, I'd have these gut tugs, which would be like, no, this is not who you are. You need to go. No, you need to go live your life as who you are. And I push those down and, and I needed therapy to see, give me a, give me the trick to push it down permanently. So, and so I started on this journey of, of therapy with various therapists. Thank you for sharing this, Ellie. Whenever I hear you speak, I really just admire your courage and your bravery. And, and thank you for sharing this with our listeners. As I, as I hear you speak and I recall your memoir, I know that you talked about one of the most difficult cases in your career with representing a trucking company in an accident where the plaintiff was severely injured, lost both limbs and suffered catastrophic injuries. And at that time, you're struggling with these gender issues and you, you talk about how you're, you're not this attack dog anymore. So at some point, it seems like, right, you can't really reconcile who you feel you are in the inside and how you are performing in the courtroom. That case came after a realization that I had, which was that unless I lived as who I truly am, I would be on my deathbed someday and look back and, and, and regret that I hadn't been braver. And so, I mean, Hmm. so I was already on a trajectory towards eventually getting to where I am now but I was trying to I was trying to pull back I mean I was trying to space it out so that I wouldn't lose my law firm Mm -hmm. and by the time that case came around I'd already 
um, left my, I had already separated from my wife and I was living on my own, but nobody knew the story. They know, nobody knew why. And I, I wasn't dressing in public and, 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 and all of that stuff. And, um, and, and, but the case came along and it was very clear to me when that case came along, I felt so sorry for this human, but I, of course, I, I was the one that had to take his deposition and we were gearing towards going to trial, but it was so clear to me that I did not have it in me to attack him. Mm-hmm. And it and became so clear to me that my future course my absolute future course in life needed to be towards compassion for all humans. It needed to be healing and not hurting. It needed to be about giving hope rather than creating despair of somebody on a witness stand. It needed to be, it needed to be about goodness. Hmm rather than about conflict. Eventually, the clients, uh, you know, as I tell the story, I got the word that I was getting removed from that case. Mm -hmm. And the client told me it was because of the insurance company. They wanted to bring their own person in Mm -hmm. uh, to try that case because the man was, you know, in the 30 million range. Mm -hmm. And they, and, and, um, and and but but as it turned out, the client wanted that to happen because they knew stuff was going on with me, and and it was all of this, you know, it comes around where eventually I do I do come out as as me in in May of 2009. I sent a letter mm-hmm. to 200 clients, lawyers, and judges in Iowa, saying I'm really not. You know, I'm really not a dude. I'm really a woman. I'm transgender. This is what it means to be transgender. And to my clients, I said, please don't fire me. But if you do, I'll help you find a lawyer because that's my obligation to protect you. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, you know, Jennifer, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but I'll just throw it in right now. I mean, the, the legal community, the reaction from the legal community in Cedar mm-hmm. Rapids, Iowa, in May of 2009 was unbelievable. Yes. They, were, they were so incredibly supportive, you know, and within, I mean, I got letters and I mean, I got letters from federal judges telling me that, mm-hmm. that they were proud of me and that they thought I was brave. And so I come out and it's not this horrible thing, you know, yes, it's very difficult. Okay. And I mean, this is 2009, even though it's what? 13 years ago for transgender people is about 75 years ago about with how Mm. the world has changed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and within a couple of months of that, I tried a jury case in Cedar Rapids where told the jury, I got opposing counsel to agree to let me tell the jury that I was transgender, not to hold it against my clients and got the jury to swear they wouldn't hold me against my clients. And we won the jury case in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I thought, okay, well, maybe my firm will survive. You know, it's going to be hard, but maybe it'll survive. But in the end, I'm, I'm my major client, um, the one with the the big case that mm-hmm. you just referenced, uh, fired me, and they were half my business. And so, mm-hmm. I ended up closing the law firm and then just moving to Minneapolis to start all over again, but not as an attack dog lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, as a kind and 
gentle and compassionate human, which turns out that's what I always was. I was always that. Mm -hmm. Going all the way back. I was that human all the way back to the day I went into my sister's underwear drawer. I was that human. That was that human. She she was there. Right. But I made but I made her hide. I made her I I I kept her away because it wasn't gonna work. If we were in your gray area thinking training right now, it seems like this would be one of the times that you would ask the audience, how are you doing with my voice? <laughs> right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. You, you check in as you divulge more of your story and lead us through the exercises. And the point of asking about your voice is, well, I'll, I'll let you explain it in your words. So lawyers are taught to make uh, lemonade out of lemons, you know, and this mm -hmm. incongruity between my voice and my appearance dogs me all the time. Um, and I'm, I can't ever forget about it because people give me the look. I mean, you know, you go to the get coffee at the coffee mm -hmm. shop, you know, you get a look from the barista. But I use it as a teaching tool because it's about the power of human familiarity. I, I Gray area thinking, if nothing else, is about the idea that we can become familiar. If we have to be brave, we have to engage. Mm -hmm. But with people who are different, you know, or uh, quote unquote other compared to us, if we're willing to just simply engage with them, get to know them, share a little bit about our lived experience, learn about their lived experience, then these differences fade away. And that's why I ask about the voice. I mean, mm -hmm. I joke around, I tell people fairly early in the training that I'm the only trainer in America that can teach to you the power of human familiarity at, at work on you in real time. And people are like, what are mm -hmm. you talking about? And that's when I say, you know, 20 minutes ago when I started, Half the room, half of you gave me the look when mm -hmm. you heard me say hello. I said, in 20 minutes in to the talk, I said, well, how are you doing now? Are you starting to forget about the incongruity? Are you starting, is it starting to work okay with you? Are you starting to even like me a little bit? And of mm -hmm. course, and then, you know, some people will nod and then I'll say, well, some of you, maybe not. Maybe it's still a little too much for you, but give me till the mm -hmm. end of the training. And then at the end of the training... Okay, so here's the spoiler, right? At the end of the training, I say, I got right. one more, one last question for you. You know, after everything's all done with gray area thinking, one last question. How are you doing with my voice? Mm -hmm. Very often, I will see people give me the thumbs up, you know, or be nodding or, you know, obviously that they've come along and they've, they've, they've forgotten about the voice. Mm -hmm. they, they've just come to see that, they just come to see that I'm a human. Mm -hmm. I'm Ellie Krug, and they sort of like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like you, and it certainly stuck with me all these years later that you checked in on your voice. Now, Ellie, you have also the very unique perspective of having tried cases as both genders. So I'm wondering if you could tell the listeners what it was like for you, what your perspective was gained when you tried a case as a female for the first time? Well, it's hard um, to encapsulate all of that other than to say, I, I came to recognize that men approach things way differently than women do. And 
Um, and, and, and I had to understand that if I was still aggressive in the courtroom, I mean, when I presented as male and I was attack dog, you know, and I, I was killer Krug and I mean, uh, jurors may not have liked me entirely, but they would have respected me. Okay. Mm. I heard that a lot, you know, well, mm -hmm. you were a little abrasive, but yeah, I knew where you're going and, and, and I respected that and, and you got to the truth. Okay. But a woman who is aggressive in the courtroom, that's the jurors not going to, they're not going to see that. What jurors are going to see is that you are, you know, now the B word starts to come in and then all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff attaches. So what I found was that I was having to, you know, hold back. I was having to ask questions in a different way. I was having to um, be way more friendly um, in the courtroom, uh, and 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 some of that, some of that I was able to do, but you know it's hard to break old habits. And I tried. I remember trying a case. It was a bench trial, and and I went after uh, I went after the expert on the other side, and, and I sat down, and my client, who had known me, you know, previously, and now knew me as Ellie, mm -hmm. whispered to me and said. Um, uh, the old crew just showed up. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. You know, but, but Jennifer, I mean, uh, I didn't, I didn't not try a whole lot of cases after I transitioned because it was clear that my mm -hmm. firm was, uh, it was not going to survive. Um, but I, I, I did bookmark. I mean, if you're going to end your career the right way, I bookmarked it the best possible way to end it, bookended it. And that was I, the very last time, and I'm not kidding you, the very last time I was ever in a courtroom representing a party, the very last time was before the Iowa Supreme Court. Wow. I had to argue a case for one of my railroad clients who did not want me to retire, a railroad client that that asked me to to not retire. In fact, they flew in the, one of their representatives for this oral argument in Des Moines. And there I was, Ellie Krug, in uh, September of 2011, mm. standing in front of the Iowa Supreme Court with this voice, um, uh, arguing a case for them, uh, for my client. And the judges were respectful. Uh, they were pronoun proper. Mm. Um, I was incredibly pleased by that. And, um, and I got done and we walked out of the Iowa Supreme Court building and and I thought good way to end it good way absolutely to, good way to put it over before we wrap up Ellie I am so curious to hear what you are most excited about now in your life in the world or in general well, I'm excited about the fact that my work is well-received and that it does appear I'm doing what I, what Dr. King and, and what Bobby Kennedy charged me to do, which was to make a difference in the world, to make the world better. I'm not a big fan of aggrandizement. You know, I, 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 I'm really not. I mean, um, but I get these, you know, people come up to me or I get emails or or, or whatever, and, and people say, Ellie, 
what you 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 talked about made a difference to me. You know, I I, I just yesterday I was with my my uh, brother and sister in law at a restaurant thirty miles from where I live, mm-hmm. uh, walking out of a walking out of a caribou coffee shop, and the woman going in. I held the door for her because she had a little dog and I held the door for her and said, here you go. And she started in and then she turned back and she looked at me and she said, I've, I've heard you speak. Wow. And she said, I'm a social worker. And I was like, oh gosh, I love, you know, I love social workers. I love working with them. And, and she's, and she said, it was, it was just a great talk. And so again, I don't like aggrandizement, but to know that maybe you have, maybe have impacted somebody talking about compassion and kindness and the need for us to be brave in order to engage with those who are different or other compared to us. And we can make anybody different or other to, to know that maybe my words cause somebody to be braver on a certain occasion to, to be welcoming, maybe to be the ally of someone who needed it to know that maybe I was the cause for that. That's what's most important for me right now. I mean, Jennifer, it's a very solitary existence. I'm alone. I, I mm-hmm. don't have a relationship. This I try to date men, but this is way too scary for most mm-hmm. men. They're very they're scaredy cats about having to, a relationship with me. And so it really does come down to my work. For me, what's really keeping me going is the work. It's the idea that, yeah, Ellie, you are moving the needle. You're making a small difference, but it's, but it's, it's moving it a little bit. As I speak with you, as I've read your memoir and I've attended your training, it just strikes me that a hallmark of your entire career really is service, right? So I also wanted to make sure that I asked you about your recent election to the local school board and congratulations on that. Thank you. Along the way, I started volunteering at the local school district, going in and speaking to students at GSAs, Gay Straight Alliances, sometimes they're called Gender and Sexuality Alliances, Mm. just to go in and talk to them. Because these are kids, you know, who may or may not be out to their parents, who may or may not be out to themselves, who may be getting bullied, and who don't hear words of affirmation very much. And I I go into GSAs, and if there are any listeners here who are connected with GSAs, reach out to me. I, I show up at GSAs on a pro bono basis. But I tell these kids that they matter, that they're mm-hmm. worthy that they have value. I mean, these are things that they don't ordinarily hear from adults, certainly strangers. Um, and anyway, so the work was well, well received within the district and somebody just suggested to me that I run for the local school board. And Jennifer, with the help of some really great people who were my committee and, and all those other people that came forward, Jennifer, I got elected. The tenet of my campaign was compassion mm-hmm. for all. I mean, I, 
I'm, I'm writing about compassion. I'm speaking about compassion. Mm -hmm. Some of my campaign committee were like, we think you need to be a little bit more specific about things. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 no. This is about teaching our children how to be ready for the world of the late 20s and the early 30s. And that mm -hmm. is a world that will be filled with other. It is a world where you will need to work with other. And so let's teach that compassion and an understanding about what it means to survive the human condition for all humans. Let's begin or continue and emphasize that. Thank you for asking about it. Of course. And I'll also comment that thanks to you, it will be a world filled with hope as well with all the work that you have done. And you really have come full circle. We started talking about compassion, and I think that's a great way to end. But I have to ask you if you can share with your listeners how they might reach out to you, get in touch with you, or learn more about you and your incredible work. Oh, thanks for the opportunity to do that. So, so if people want to uh, reach out to me, you can do it a couple of ways. Uh, the primary way is to go to my website, elliekrug.com and uh and and you can email me at lej you need to include the j lej krug k-r-u-g e-l-l-i-e-j k-r-u-g at gmail.com it's a pretty simple email address if you want to read my book it's getting to ellen a memoir about love honesty and gender change it's available on amazon kindle or nook um, and if, and I have a standing offer that if your book club reads my book, I will come to your book club via zoom at no charge. Okay. I'm just grateful that people would be willing to let my words occupy a part of their brain. And that's the way I, I, I say I'm thanks is I'll come to people's book clubs. I also have a website for my company, humaninspirationworks.com. You can go to elliekrug.com as well. That's probably the place really to go. Ellie, thank you so much for this conversation today. You are inspiring, you are courageous, you are authentic, and for me personally, transformative. I can't thank you enough. Jennifer, thanks for the opportunity. I'm really grateful that you reached out and that, that you were, you know, you asked me to be here. And, and uh, to your listeners, I, I just want to say thanks for, for listening and, and for understanding that this voice that you've been hearing isn't attached to some, you know, dude who is you know, six foot two, 242 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> the hearing. Thank you for listening. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So please drop us a line at the hearing at tr.com. The hearing a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.